Adjacent Alpha course, then you are triply welcome uh, this morning. All you visitors, come again. Uh, you don't just have to come this week, come every week. Um, uh, come and be part of this family. So what a fantastic bunch of stories and baptisms that we've just seen, yeah? Yeah. Um, I love them. Um, what an eye-catching demonstration of the truth of Jesus coming alive into people's hearts. That's what you've just seen. Changing them, bringing them closer and closer into a wonderful, life-giving relationship with Jesus. Fantastic. Um, if you come to our um, Sunday services regularly, you'll know that we are currently exploring, this is our preaching, our sermon series if you like, we are exploring some of the claims of this very person, Jesus, that you've been singing about, hearing about this morning. Some of the things that Jesus actually said, often controversially. We want to know the real Jesus, don't we? And so that's what this sermon series really, really is about. And so this morning, I want to unpack Uh, for us all to unpack together, really, a conversation, but particularly a very famous quote, really, that Jesus spoke to his disciples over 2,000 years ago that is today still creating a stir. Um, So let's read it together, shall we? Um, So setting the scene, Jesus is with his disciples just hours away from being led out of the city to be crucified. Uh, And this conversation, which we're about to sneak in on, if you like, is Jesus comforting his grieving disciples, the men that had been with him for three years, watching everything that Jesus uh, did and said. And so he tells them, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me, because I am God. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him, because it's me. I'm the very person of God, says Jesus. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be not enough for us. He obviously hasn't got it yet. So Jesus has to hammer home again. He answers, Do, don't you know, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, because Jesus is God. Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Jesus, for this um, for, this, for, the, for your words. Thank you, Jesus, that you spoke truth. Thank you, Jesus, that you um, really loved your disciples and you wanted them to know every single thing about you. And we pray, Holy Spirit, as we listen to your very words, that you will bring those words alive in our lives so that they are meaningful, relevant, and life-changing. 
Come, Spirit of God, touch everyone here this morning with the truth of your joy news, your gospel in your name. Thank you, Lord Jesus. So, um, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what he said. You know what? That is a radical statement. That is a fall off your seat in amazement uh, statement. Wow! I can see from your faces that you are blown away by it. (laughs) At first it might not sound like it. Some of us may have actually become very familiar, too familiar with it actually. But when you really think about what Jesus says about himself, it's jaw-dropping. So let's look at it. Three bits, three things, three claims of Jesus, if you like, to rock you off your chair a little this morning. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So firstly, Jesus said he is the way. Not just one way among many ways. Not just, hey, look, I'm Jesus. I'm going to point you to the way. No, Jesus says, I am the way. Wow. Who wants to be happy? Who is already happy? Yeah, right. More more than ever, I think, happiness has become the goal of virtually everyone these days. Happiness is the thing that everyone seeks after, yearns for, tries to achieve. It's true, isn't it? Uh, Prince Charles once said, um, there remains deep in the soul, if I dare use that word, a persistent and unconscious anxiety that something is missing, some ingredient that makes life worth living. Do you relate to that? So what brings happiness and contentment? What's the way? Now I think generally most people uh, today think things like technology or politics or better standards of living or a better job or holidays or education or health, buying more stuff, falling in love, becoming successful, etc., etc. These are the things that make us happy in the end. These are the things that will make life worth living. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. These things are all good. They are. But if we really look at, say, over the last 200 years, say, in spite of our ancestors having fewer economic choices, less political and social freedom, fewer job opportunities, no health benefits, shorter life expectancies, can we really say with our hand on our hearts that we are more happier than they are? I'm not so sure. I'm a GP, and just recently I was reading that since the 1950s, quite a while ago, since the 1950s, depression has increased by, wait for it, 1,000%. Mind-blowing, isn't it? I had to read it again. I thought it was a misprint. Now, I'm sure there are all sorts of reasons for that high figure, like a better diagnosis of the condition, and people feeling more free to admit to it. But let me tell you what it's not saying. It's not saying that as a society, we are becoming happier, more contented, and more secure people. It's just not. 
When it comes to the question of consistent happiness and contentment and joy, the Bible is actually very controversial. It says that consistent happiness and joy is a profoundly cosmic thing. It's a spiritual thing that God is the true source of sustained happiness. That's what, that's what we were hearing from these guys being baptized this morning, weren't we? Even in the midst of trials, some of these guys, you don't know their stories in detail, but even in the midst of trials, and often in the midst of their trials and difficulties, they have found something more concrete, more reliable, more trustworthy than the other things that they have um, looked to before for joy. A joy that surpasses anything they've experienced before. How can that be? Well, we'll get on to that later. But my, fir- my relatively short first point is that the Bible declares that all these other things that we look to, apart from God, apart from Jesus, to bring us happiness, that try and promise us everlasting joy, will not last, cannot last. And if you don't believe that, just give it time. You will. C.S. Lewis, uh, the writer of the uh, Narnia books, The Lion, the Witch, Witch and the Wardrobe and so on, he wrote this, If we consider the unblushing promises offered to us in the Gospels, the story of Jesus, it would seem our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us in God. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the seaside. We are far too easily pleased. You see, the Bible is crystal clear. Every joy that does not have Jesus as the central gladness of that joy is a hollow joy and in the end will burst like a bubble. Where are you searching for your happiness? Is it working? Will it last? Are you sure? Jesus says he's the only way. So secondly, Jesus said, I am the truth. He said he's the way. He's also said, I am the truth. The the famous atheist writer, someone who doesn't believe in God, uh, a guy called Sam Harris, wrote this about people who do believe in God. And he said this, we have names for people who have many beliefs for which there is no rational justification. When their uh, beliefs are extremely common, we call them religious Otherwise, they are likely to be called mad, psychotic, or delusional. While religious people are not generally mad, not generally, their core beliefs absolutely are. I like that quote. I once used to think of that about you lot before I, while I was on an alpha course. Because that's how a lot of people see faith these days, don't they? People think of faith, um, think faith comes about because of a lack of thinking things through. A refusal to think, maybe. It's why people say faith is blind. Christians must be bonkers, are bonkers. They clearly don't use their brains 
their brains if they believe the things that the Bible talks about. Faith cannot be based on truth at all. Is that what you think? I'm not so sure. You see, as a doctor, I've always tried to reason things out. And the longer I've been a Christian, I've come to the conclusion that the Christian faith isn't just blind. It's not just close your eyes, cross your fingers, hope for the best best faith. No way. That kind of faith wouldn't have convinced me, me, and I'm sure it wouldn't have convinced many of you here this morning. No, what I've come to understand over the years of reading and studying and looking and hearing from a lot of you guys here this morning um, is that real, genuine Christian faith consists of, demands, requires of us, in fact, stimulates the profoundest thinking and reasoning and rationality there is. You cannot be a Christian and believe the things Christians do without using your brain to its uttermost. In fact, I'll go as far as to say that the reason why there isn't so much faith um, in the UK today is because there isn't enough thinking. You see, we live in a culture that is too busy to think. We live in a culture that doesn't understand the importance of the big questions of life. What am I here for? Am I just an accident? Is everything really just a series of chemical reactions like love and justice and bereavement and morality and laughter? Is that all they just boil down to? Or does my life come with purpose and meaning? What do I live for? What hope is there? How can I know what is right and what is wrong? These are the big questions that we tend to sweep under the carpet of life, don't we? Those questions are for the philosophers, the brainy guys. You don't need to worry about all that stuff. Who needs faith? And the problem, you see, is this. That is not doubt on the basis of thinking and reasoning. Rather, that is doubt on the basis of an absence of thinking, a refusal to think. And do you know what? That won't do. That will not stand the test of time in your life. When the storm hits, that will not get you through. That's what Jesus is saying. The truth of Jesus, God, the truth of uh, biblical truth, eternal truth, because that's what it is. Eternal truth. And everything that isn't eternal will eventually become outdated and unfashionable. We need eternal truth of God. Everything that is not eternal will eventually become outdated. It always does. Think about that. The Apostle Paul, one of the main contributors to the Bible, says this, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. Understanding of what? In order that they may know the mystery of God namely Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's a big claim, isn't it? That's a big claim. That's a huge prayer. Jesus Christ said he is the truth above all truths. He is God himself, 
the very reason for life. A man who has shaped and changed your world, and you probably realize, probably the most influential man who's ever lived on planet Earth. Before you cast him aside, you've got to really consider, like these guys who you've seen this morning, what he really said and what he really did, who he really is, and any other response would be foolish. Have you really, really thought it through? Jesus says he is the way. Jesus says he is the truth. And thirdly and finally, Jesus said he is the life. Um, One of my favorite paintings is uh, Michelangelo's um, The Creation of Adam. Uh, It's on the ceiling of the Vatican Sistine Chapel in Rome. It's actually called a fresco because it's not, it's not painted on canvas, I think. I think that's what a fresco is. Um, and it took him, it's a very famous painting, you'll recognize it, it took him four years to finish. Four years of intense, grueling labor. The physical demands of having to stand on scaffolding on the top of this roof and painting above his head was torture. In fact, one night, exhausted by his work, alone with his doubts, discouraged by a project that he felt was just far too great for him. He wrote this in his journal. One single sentence. He wrote, I am no painter. Yet amazingly, this painting has spoken to millions of people over half a millennium. has inspired generations. So what's it showing? Let's look at it closer. Not too close. Let's, let's look at it closer, shall we? Because it's showing something unique, something that really hadn't been seen in paintings up until now. In this painting, the figure of God on the right is, 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 is painted as someone who is going out of his way to reach out to Adam. If you look closely, God is twisting his body to move it as close to Adam as possible. His head is turned towards Adam. His gaze is fixed on him. God's arm is stretched out. His finger is extended straight forward. Every muscle in his body is taut and contracted. This God is rushing forward toward Adam on a cloud, one of the chariots of heaven, propelled by the angels. What is Michelangelo trying to get across? What does he want us to see in this picture? I'll tell you what. He's impressing on us that even in the midst of all the splendor and all the wonder of God's creation, this isn't the main thing that is captivating the Christian God. No. Rather, his entire being is wrapped up in his one and only desire to close the gap between himself and Adam. Humanity, you and me. He can't wait. That's what Michelangelo is trying to get get across in this painting. God's hand comes within a hairbreadth of Adam's. He is offering Adam life, life with God, life to the full. But get this. Having come so close, he doesn't force himself on Adam. No, that's not God's style. He allows Adam just a little bit of space. 
He waits for Adam to make his move. He gives him the dignity and the space to make his own choice. Uh, one art critic writes about this, this, um, this moment. All of man's potential, physical and spiritual, is contained in this one timeless moment. Will Adam invite God in? So how do you see God? Do you see him as a supernatural being who can't wait to be in intimate, loving relationship with you? Do you? A loving, caring father who wraps you up in his arms. Because that's the wonder of what this painting is saying about the Christian God. That's what Dennis was interpreting this morning as you heard him. You see, we tend to live in a world that thinks if God exists, he can't be bothered or he can't be good. What else would explain the stuff that goes on in the papers, the news, the telly, your lives? Why does God allow suffering and evil? Doesn't he care? Very difficult questions. Some of you might believe in God. And if you, be, if you do believe in God, um, and you might be from another faith, how do you see God? Do you see him as distant up there and out there, an almighty, powerful God, so important, so glorious and holy that he couldn't possibly relate to you in the intimacy and closeness that we see God moving towards Adam in this painting. Maybe you think you're not good enough. Maybe you'll never be good enough. Romans 5, one of the books in the Bible, Romans 5, 8 to 9, summarizes for us the good news of Jesus. What we've been singing about this morning, what the guys have talked about this morning. He does care. More than you can imagine, actually, says Romans 5. More than you actually care for yourself. This is what Romans 5, 8 to 9 says. God, listen, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, saved us from the wrath of God through him. That's the gospel. That's the good news that is celebrated throughout the world, throughout history, actually. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you might think, that doesn't sound like very good news to me. The wrath of God? Sounds a bit scary, actually, doesn't it? But let me tell you, respectfully, once again, you haven't really thought it through. I hadn't until I really understood what this was talking about. What's God's wrath? It's not just God uh, having a bad day like you or me. It's not just God in a mood. No, the wrath of God is God's just and righteous opposition to injustice and evil and wrongdoing and sin. Uh, the English playwriter and uh, book writer Somerset Morgan once said, if I wrote down every thought I've ever thought and every deed that I've ever done, men would call me a monster of depravity. That's you too, if you're honest. The Apostle Paul writes earlier in this letter, um, Romans 3.23, all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even Jesus said in Mark 7, it's what comes out of a person that pollutes him. 
Obscenities, lusts, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, depravity, deceptive dealings, um, arrogance, foolishness, mean looks, slander. I think that pretty much includes every one of us. All these are vomit from the heart, says Jesus. A heart that is in rebellion towards God. That's what sin is. That's the reality. That's the ultimate diagnosis, if you like. We can quite happily ignore it, can't we? As if it wasn't real. But the God of creation, the uh, the Christian God, cannot ignore our sin. Humanity's sin, like we do. It breaks his heart. He can't just sweep our lives of dishonor, disregard, and and, and disobedience for him under some great cosmic carpet in the sky. He can't. That's what makes him God. That's why we worship him. But the joy news is this. The God of the Bible, the same just and righteous God, Jesus, loves you too much to give you what you deserve. And so while we were still sinners, not once we got our lives and acts together, once, not once it all became okay, well before that actually, While we were still sinners, Christ died instead of us. You see, he took the wrath, he took the punishment, the condemnation that was owing to us so that we may go free. We heard that this morning. That's the gospel, that's the joy news we celebrate as Christians. Not of our doing, not as a a consequence of our hard work and effort like all other beliefs and religions would tell you. No, it's very different. Totally amazing grace, undeserved, unmerited favor of God. A God who is besotted by us, who goes out of his way to draw you in. As Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, Jesus Christ was up on the cross, hurting, bleeding, dying, looking down at the people, forsaking him, denying him, betraying him, and in the greatest act of love in the universe he stayed. That's the foundation for Christian joy. That's where our joy comes from. It's not a concept. It's not just positive thinking. If I think, if I say it enough times, it'll come true. It's real. How do we know it's real? Look at the cross. So I'm going to finish with this. I think it will help. Imagine that you went on holiday with a friend. Um, uh, Imagine you went on holiday and a friend of yours decides to stay at your home while you're away. And while you're away, that friend uh, opens your mail as you've asked him to so that nothing gets missed. And one morning he opens a letter and it's a bill. And he decides to pay it himself for you. That's nice, isn't it? And so when you get back, you get to hear this. And do you know what? You want to thank him. So how do you respond? And the answer to that is you have no idea how to respond. Why? Because you don't know the size of the debt that was owing to you. How big was that bill? Was it a fiver for a book that you might have bought on Amazon? If that was the case, you'd have said, cheers, buddy, thanks a lot. You really shouldn't have. But what if that bill was from the inland revenue, the tax man? They'd found you at last, Jonathan. 
the bill for all the taxes that you owed them for the last 20 years suddenly turned up on your doorstep. Money that you just didn't have. And this one true friend paid it all off in one go. How would you respond then? You'd be astounded, wouldn't you? You'd be thunderstruck. The response would be completely different, wouldn't it? Totally. Why? Because unless you know the size of your debt, you don't know whether to say, cheers, thank you very much, or fall at the person's feet in gratitude. And that's how the gospel of Jesus brings you joy everlasting. That's the importance of knowing about the wrath of God, the size of the debt. That's how we know how to respond to Jesus. God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and saved us from the wrath of God. John 3.16 also says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Would you do that? He gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him. What joy? What joy is he talking about? He's talking about you. You're his joy. For you, Jesus, endured the horror of the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Mission accomplished. You see, from the outside, the truth that you're more wicked than you ever believed you were, and that you deserved rightfully the holy wrath and punishment of God, sounds really bad news, doesn't it? It should, because it is. The truth hurts. But from the inside, once you put your trust in Jesus, as these guys have declared this morning, very, very vividly in the water, once you've understood the amazing grace of God like these guys, his ultimate act of love for you, love to you, it inflicts on you a joy that never, ever ceases to go away, even in the midst of trials and difficulties. You see, if you don't get it, it's because you're on the wrong side. You're not on the inside. The only debt that can really sink you now has been paid. The only disease that can really kill you has been healed. Jesus has dealt with it on the cross. That is the Christian foundation for rejoicing. That is how loved you are. That is how precious you are to God. A God who took hell into his soul so that you would never have to. Question, why would you not want that free gift that Jesus is offering you this morning? What is stopping you? If the band can come up, that would be great. You might not know it, you might not know it, but you are his joy this morning. You really are. And he, Jesus, only Jesus, is the way, the truth, and the life. And you know what? This morning, he wants to bring the radical, he wants to bring to you the radical joy of knowing him. An everlasting joy. A joy that can ride every single wave of life. And all he asks from you this morning is to lift your finger and make contact.
He's just a hairbreadth away. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond to the joy news, the gospel of Jesus this morning? Let's stand, shall we? Uh, We're going to sing a song now, and we're also going to pass a bucket round um, to take our offering. If you're a visitor here with us, we don't want your money. We're just so grateful that you've come come and joined us this morning. But how are you going to respond to Jesus this morning? Because as Simon said this morning as he was explaining baptism, the way to respond to Jesus is in two ways. One is to say sorry. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you might be wanting to say sorry to Jesus this morning for all your dishonor, for all your disobedience, and for all your disregard for him. That takes a lot of uh, humility to say that. But you might want to say sorry to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that we've heard this morning. And after you said sorry, you know what? That is you making contact with God. Because he will rush in, he will forgive you, and he will bestow on you a love like you have never experienced before. A love that is everlasting. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, I want to encourage you to say that prayer. Sorry, Jesus, for everything I've done. Sorry for my sin. Sorry for the barrier that I've put between me and you. And Lord Jesus... I want you to enter in. I'm so sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. And then when he's forgiven you, you can rejoice and thank him. If you want to do that this morning, we're going to sing a song. If you want to do that this morning, it's between you and God.